Welcome, I'm Melissa Durda, and this is Synergo's Cultivate the Soul podcast. Stories of purpose-driven philanthropy from around the world. Over this series, we explore together the intersection of contemplative practices, spirituality, philanthropy, and social impact. Join us as we dive into the personal journey of each guest and what they have discovered about the role of inner work on one's capacity to change the world. To learn more about each of our guests and view the full episode list, please visit synergos.org podcast. Om Shanti, a greeting of peace. My name is Sister Janti, and I'm with the Brahma Kumaris, and I cultivate my soul with spiritual study every day so that I'm back on track every morning in the way that I would like, and also time for silence with myself in connection with the divine. Today we are joined by Sister Jayanti, the spiritual teacher of the Brahma Kumaris. The Brahma Kumaris is the world's largest spiritual organization led by women. Sister Jayanti has championed the cooperative role of spiritual organizations in creating a just and peaceful world and has brought spiritual principles to the discussion tables of politicians, economists, business leaders, scientists, and nearly every stakeholder of our times. Sister Jayanti's full bio is available on our podcast website. So, Sister Jayanti, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you on today. It's my privilege and honor and happy to be with you. Thank you. I would love to get us started by asking you to share a memory or a story from your life that has been instrumental in shaping your views on what matters. I was eight when we left India, when my parents decided to migrate to London, and I've been living there ever since. I must have been around 15 when we went back to India on holiday. And school holidays were, of course, during July and August, which are the monsoon period in that part of India, Bombay, Pune, which is where my hometown was. And we landed in Bombay at around midnight or so. In those days, flights landed at that time. And it was heavy monsoons. The water was coming down. It was really torrential. And as we drove past on the highway, I could see people whose homes had been just absolutely dissolved in the rain because they had cardboard shanty huts. And they were sitting on the roadside. Their home was gone. They had nothing else. And it was whole families, men, women, children. The first instinct was, can I go straight back to London? But we were coming back to India to meet relatives after a gap of some years, and so that wasn't a possibility. But it took several days to just acclimatize myself to that and to feel that, well, this is part of humanity and I have to accept it. But the injustice of the whole scene was something that was very, very difficult to tolerate at that time. But it set a whole trigger in my mind, thinking about what is justice, why do things like this happen? But most of all, it was the thought that, well, my life can't be for myself, just for me. It has to be of some type of service for others. 
And the thought was perhaps medicine is the way, but I wasn't sure. And gradually through the years, in fact, what I decided to do was to join the spiritual university of the Brahmakumaris. And that then took me off in a different path than just the external type of service of humanity to a different dimension of spiritual service. So yes, that scene is still very vivid in my mind, the monsoon rain and the bleakness of the scene. Wow, that's a powerful memory and story. And unfortunately, these are scenes that we still see today. And it's hard to reconcile those questions that I feel like you've just shared with us around the justice of this happening to people and what can one do about that. So thank you for sharing that. And so as you continued on your journey, did you uncover for yourself a particular passion or purpose? And if so, what is that? In fact, when I was by then just 19, actually would have been a month before. So it was around early April. And I'd come to stay for a stretch of time in India. And by the time a few months had gone by, I was thinking that, you know, my head feels a bit woolly. I need something solid to think about and to feed myself. And I thought of the Brahma Kumaris because I'd known them since childhood through my mother and grandmother and met them many times. And they were very loving, warm, friendly people. But I didn't have the patience to listen to what they actually were saying. And of course, I also had to know a bit more of the language Hindi because coming to India for two weeks on holiday wasn't enough. You can't pick up a language that quickly or I couldn't. And then spending a few months there, I was able to understand more. And I went knocking on the door of Daddy Janki, who later came to London, but she was there resident in my hometown of Pune. And she started talking about conscience and how the conscience has been covered over by influences and layers of things like media, school, education, friends, habits, all of these things. And everything is a sort of gray and nothing is very clear in terms of what to do and where to go and how to do it. And when I heard her explain all of this, I asked the question, well, how do you get rid of all these influences? And she says, you have to meditate. And that's how I started my journey. And so since then, my passion has been to help people understand who they are from a spiritual dimension, because we have all these masks that we wear in terms of position and possessions and prestige and the label outside the door, all of these things. And you can't get to know yourself if you just stay on that level, on the external. You have to go on an inner journey. And so my wish for everyone really is that they should be able to get to know themselves and find out who they really are so that then they can actually do that which is the highest, which is allowing them to fulfill their real potential. Because unless I know who I am, and it's not a short journey, it's not overnight, it takes time, but only when you do know who you are, then can you start sharing that and it creates purpose in life. So that has been my passion since 1968. Well, it's so important and so relevant. I feel like some of the work we're doing at Synergos, as you know, we work with philanthropic families 
and even through projects like this podcast, we're really exploring who it is we are and how that connects to how we show up in the world and the work that we do. We also work with young leaders to also help them find their authentic selves. So this speaks very deeply to me. But I'd also like to ask you just a little bit more about yourself in terms of, you mentioned that you were advised to meditate in order to connect to source. Can you tell us more about maybe practices that nurture you or perhaps even that have helped you find your authentic self? The practice of meditation that I started to learn that very same day was to be able to go firstly to the awareness of what we would describe as the soul, the being that I am, the living energy within this physical form. And we would say that the soul is resident here in the center of the forehead. And so often we hear about the third eye or the eye of wisdom. And so the soul, in my experience and my understanding, resides here, not on the skin, but just beneath. And it's like in front of the pineal gland, just there. It's got no weight, no height, no length, no breadth, no width. It's just an infinitesimal point and it exists and it doesn't have physical dimensions at all. And it's a being which is life itself. It's a being which has light and it radiates that light depending on how awake and aware the individual is. And so that first lesson was all about, well, who am I and what is the soul and how mind and personality and thoughts and feelings and conscience and values, all of these memories, how do all of these work together? So for me, that was a beautiful discovery on the theoretical level. And then as you begin to practice this inner awareness of being the soul, and then you also taught about the supreme being, the source. And my understanding then was that that being is also a soul, but the supreme, the highest amongst all souls, not because of size or dimension, but the same, the infinitesimal. But that being has an ocean of love, of light, of truth, of compassion, of forgiveness, all the qualities that are positive attributes, that being is the essence and the ocean of all of these attributes. And so at a time like now, when people really are searching for love but don't know what it is, when you're so conscious and you connect with the source in this way, you're immediately surrounded by that pure love which holds you and nurtures you and transforms you. And you begin to experience each and every one of these different qualities. So the meditation is not stopping thoughts, but it's channeling the mind in the right direction. So I'm thinking about thoughts that are elevated, that are pure, that are going to be helpful for me on my journey. Well, thank you for sharing that. I feel like I have learned a new way of meditating myself through your description of how you are able to do that and how you nurture yourself. As we look at what we do to nurture ourselves and transforming ourselves through love and through peace, how have you brought this to your outer world and to others? 
we've met at the Spirit of Humanity Forum, which is an organization that you are involved with and co-founded. And I know there are many other types of work that you've done. Could you share with us some examples of how you're bringing this inner work out into the world? Well, first and foremost, the transformation that happens within the self, within, changes the quality of interaction with everyone around you, whether it's family or friends or work colleagues. And so that transformation is visible, it's noticeable. And so where maybe I would be impatient before, or my mind would be very quick to criticize, and maybe sometimes was spoken, sometimes was just inside, but the critical mind was functioning very fast. Maybe through the meditation and the experiences of silence, that's been transformed to a great extent. It hasn't gone completely but I would say it's being transformed to a big extent. And so, of course, then the atmosphere that you generate and the feelings that you create in others also, that changes. And so I think that's a very, very important task. And then since 1982, we've been affiliated with the UN as an NGO, and maybe that's the outward expression that people would instantly understand and associate with. And so we've been part of the peace movement, did a lot of beautiful things that happened for the International Year of Peace. But we ask people, not for their money, but for their time. And maybe that's even more precious. We were asking people to donate minutes whether in prayer or whether through positive thinking or through meditation, whatever was their particular path and inclination. And so it was a bit of fun, but it snowballed. It was totally non-fundraising and we didn't have a budget to begin with. And so it was a lot of fun. It reached out into 68 countries. And at the end of all of that, we'd raised over a billion minutes of peace. <laughs> The Brahma Kumaris received seven Peace Messenger Awards for that because it became the largest NGO non-fundraising project for the Year of Peace. Then they asked us, the Peace Studies Unit that had been created for this at that time, asked us to actually do a follow-up program. And so we came up with this idea of Global Cooperation for a Better World. What we were doing is asking people to share their vision, their vision of what is a better world for them, a vision of how they see relationships in that world. And the third question, how they see themselves in that better world. And there was a golden rule they had to observe. And on any of these levels, they shouldn't speak in negative language. So they shouldn't talk about, I don't want war, I don't want illness. But rather it could be, I want peace or I want good health for everyone. So there's always a way to change language. And we found sometimes it would take as much as 40 minutes for a group. And usually we would have groups of six or eight do this. And it took them a long time to change their language. And of course, language is coming from our brain and the patterns we've created there through our thinking. So. It was such a clear exercise that people were so stuck in negative habits, but 
this began to turn it around. And then at the end of the visioning, we would ask them, is there one step that you can take today to create that better world that you have talked about? And that was amazing. That reached out into 120 plus countries, which was at that time, every country that had a population of over 1 million. It just went from country to country where we didn't even have any centers. We had centers in about 60 countries by then, but the project just flew. It just went everywhere. One example, Shine Boys in Brazil, and they said, what we will do is to have friendship amongst ourselves because they're usually in competition with each other. And how would you demonstrate that friendship? If my colleague needs some polish and his has run out or his brushes aren't the right brushes, we'll change brushes, we'll give them the polish that they need, we'll help each other. A family in Athens said, we want to create harmony in our family. And so what are you going to do? We're going to make one of our rooms into a no complaints zone. When we enter that room and we eat together or we sit for an evening together, no complaints. A woman in Japan said what she wanted was freedom. And how was she going to do it? In her tiny little apartment that she shared with her family in Tokyo, she was going to create a little corner which was her corner to be able to have meditation. So it was just beautiful. And after three years of going through all of this, and people were contributing through poetry, through drama, through pose, through paintings, it was just amazing to see the creativity. But finally, then it took us six months to collate everything. And we had a team of 40 people sitting in our headquarters in Mount Abu going through all the entries. And what came out was a list of values. Nobody wanted a bigger car or a bigger house or anything like that. They all were asking for a world of values. And so that was beautiful because where do values live? They live in the soul. They don't live in my hands and my feet, but within the soul itself. And so here was a project that started with just a vision without any other thought except let it be in positive language and just talk about what it is you really want. And what people came up with was values. So it was absolutely an entry point into spirituality. But also, whether it was the project being run in Jordan or in Israel, it didn't matter the values that people shared were universal and everybody just simply shared those values. So it was very, very intoxicating to see how people responded to these projects. And then, of course, there's all the work at the UN with women or children or health, but also since 2009 with climate change. So I think I've been to every one of the climate change conferences since then, except two. And I'll be going again this year in Dubai, in the UAE. And when we started to attend these conferences, firstly as observers, and then also having side events of our own, but also exhibitions that we put on, where sometimes there's space in the blue zone for the uh, civil society or the green zone. The no, green zone is civil society, blue zone is the UN government. 
that we would have stalls in both these areas and we would be explaining how consciousness is connected with climate. Because the first question people would say, well, what has spirituality got to do with climate? And you'd say, well, everything depends on consciousness. And if you're a consumer and you're totally materialistic and you think that buy, buy, buy is going to bring you happiness and it doesn't, well, have you added to your carbon footprint or have you reduced it? And so what is it doing to the environment? And so consciousness, behavior, awareness, all of this and action, all of these are connected. And so they could then begin to see within a few minutes how spirituality and consciousness of a spiritual nature could actually make a difference to the state of the world and the environment. So that's been very rewarding. And after we'd been going several years, some years ago, there was um, a combination of the Fiji government and the German government to host one of the COP conferences in Bonn, but the content was very much from the Fiji government. But within that, UNESCO had a stall and the heading outside the stall was changing minds, not climate. And I thought, you're getting there. <laughs> the message is being understood. So that was very lovely. So I see that because spirituality and consciousness is really at the heart of everything, because that is what makes human beings different to all other species, consciousness and spirituality. And it's human beings who created the world that we have with all its wonders and mir miracles of technology, but also the downside of all the things we've done to the state of the world, whether it's the environment or the economy or the subject of values and all the addictions that have come up because we are so empty inside. So spirituality and the inner work you do inside literally covers everything that's going on. And the UN recognized this. And way back at the end of the 90s, they gave us general consultative status, which meant that they could see that the work we were doing would have an impact on a general level in every area of the work of the critical issues that the UN is dealing with. So it has a total impact on everything. Well, thank you for making that connection around consciousness and the change that so many of us are working towards in the world and for advocating for this on the global level with these bodies. It's a credit to the UN that they are working with you in this way. Where do you see the state of the world? Where are we in terms of progress, maybe of making this connection? And, you know, how do you imagine the future and the role of love in this future? I see two different energies at work simultaneously. One is the negative descending force, and I don't need to describe it. You can see it in so many different ways. But there's another very quiet energy that's also working, and that's the ascending energy. And this is the energy of love and peace and truth and joy and I see that there's a holistic approach that there never used to be before, whether it's to health or architecture or education. We're looking at these things that we never, ever thought we would, say, 50 years ago. How many people have turned to not just vegetarian diet, but vegan diet? And, of course, that's such a huge contribution 
to the impact on the environment. And so that's happening. I see that more and more people are talking about values. Again, in the 80s and 90s, they weren't doing that. And it was only when we started this project that vision and values came into the corporate world. That was interesting because we had a corporate person who was part of our executive committee because we had a committee that spanned the world, New York and Nairobi and Sydney and London and Delhi. And much, much later on, after the Soviet Union had changed, then Russia also became one of our regional places. And so it was always this global vision. And this corporate person said, um, you can't talk about values. You can't talk about vision. These things, uh, people will dismiss it as being airy-fairy. And we talked it through and through and through, hours and hours. But we still came to that conclusion that this is what we want to talk about, to allow people to think about higher vision, but also practical action because both things need to go together. And then the whole thing of values came up in a very big way. So I see that all this is part of the ascending energy. And although it may seem as if this is a minority view and the other is the majority view, true, but a small group of committed individuals, Margaret Mead, can make a difference to the world and they are the only ones who can actually make a difference to the world, a small group of committed individuals. So a minority that begins to experience this awakening and comes together with that energy can bring about transformation in a very big way. Think about a container of ice, of water, a container of water, and you want to freeze it. And if you examine what's going on, it'll be a molecule here and a molecule here and a molecule here that starts to freeze. But once there's a critical mass of molecules that are frozen, the whole thing will freeze. And so that critical mass is what we're headed towards. And I think it's coming very, very quickly. The sort of podcast that you're doing, that's amazing. 20 years ago, who would have thought that this would be happening? And this is true in so many other cases, you know, the UN opening up to civil society in the way that it has and listening to the voices of young people, of alternative views in so many different areas, it's happening. And so I see that the future is a very beautiful one, one in which human beings will have that awareness of spirit and who they are, and they'll relate to each other with that consciousness of connecting with spirit rather than just the physical form. And through that one change, the change of my vision from physical consciousness to spiritual consciousness, you can bring about unity and harmony in a whole wide world. You can bring about a difference in the way in which we respond to all other beings and nature itself because you learn about respect and dignity. And so when you treat others with love, it means you're giving them respect. When you treat nature with love, it's again giving nature the respect that it deserves and reducing your carbon footprint so that you're not damaging the earth. 
So yes, definitely love is that energy that's going to make all of these changes happen. But you need access to the love that's within and the love that can come from without. Well, thank you for painting a positive picture of the future and where we are and how we've progressed during the time that you've been working to bring your inner self to the outer world. So thank you for that. How can people learn more if they're interested in learning more about the Brahma Kumari's work that they're doing with the UN or anything that they'd like to connect to this work? Is there a website that they could go to? That's right, there is www.brahmakumaris.org. That's our international website, and they'll be able to access all the information about the things I've been sharing, plus, plus, plus. But also then there's, it will direct you to national sites. So if people happen to be listening and watching from other parts of the world, they can access that information too. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for the work that you're doing in the world. And thank you for coming on today's podcast to share the work. Well, I want to thank the Synagogue's Foundation for the amazing work that all of you are doing. And thank you for having me. And it's beautiful that you are working in this way to cultivate the nourishment for souls. Thank you. Om Shanti, a greeting of peace. What I liked about this conversation with Sister Jayanti is learning how inner transformation through personal practice like meditation can transform our outer worlds and help us work on global issues, including climate change.